Well, uh, good to have you guys here this morning. Uh, we're glad that you're here worshiping with us. Um, I'm Pastor Matt Beck, and if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like for you to turn with them in them with me to uh, Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 21. I want us to continue our series, Influencing Our World for Christ. And today we're going to look at another one of Jesus' parables, where I have found some great lessons and principles to help us learn how to invest in heaven. How to invest in heaven. You know, every day of our lives, we are being pulled in a number of different directions. On the one hand, we have family responsibilities pulling us one way. We have our obligation to the church that is pulling us another way. And then we have friends who are pulling us yet another way. We are left wondering, what really is important in life? Are we investing our time and our resources in the right things? Now, before we get into our study, I'd like to start off this morning in prayer. Can you bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity that I have to be here to preach your word. Lord, thank you for the study of this week, the preparation that you've done in my own life, the work that you've done in me. And Lord, I just ask now that as I, I preach this message that you've given to me, that others here would uh, open their hearts and their minds too. Lord, I, I count it a privilege to know you and, and that my relationship is, is uh, growing in you stronger daily. Lord, I desire change in my own life. It's so easy to get sucked into the world and, and the influence that it has. And, and I'm asking right now for that, that ability to be able to stand strong, to be that light in the darkness, to be that influence that you've called me to be. I pray for us as a congregation too, that each of us would desire that change in our own lives, that we would stand strong, and that we would be that influence that you've called us to be. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 21, look with me on the screen here, and it says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Listen to that last verse again. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, that passage of Scripture really is a genuine treasure. It's the greatest instruction that we could ever receive regarding our finances. It shifts the focus from saving up treasures here on earth to saving up treasures in heaven. It advises us to shift from worldly materialistic things to the things of God. Money, wealth, and materialism are cancers that eat away at the character of Christians and the ministry of the church. 
Our culture is saturated with materialism. From the moment of our birth, we are encouraged to make the most money that we can and buy the most stuff that we can and gain the most power that we can. We are constantly bombarded with the message that more wealth and more stuff are the answers to our problems in life. They are the things which bring true happiness. And tragically, many Christians have brought in, bought into this philosophy of the need for more. And that quest for more money and for more property and more stuff has gotten many people into financial turmoil. The quest for more things and the lack of enough money is a stressor that seems to destroy homes and families, even Christian homes and their families. It's a serious problem that is affecting many of us now more than ever, than it ever has before. And the temptations go for more are constant. Four or five new credit card applications a day. Everyone on the planet seems to want to lend us money and help us refinance away what little equity we have in our homes. Telemarketers, they try to sell us windows, gutters, vinyl siding, and dream vacations. Everyone around us is pressuring us to go for more, more, and more. But you know what? Jesus has another plan for us. He has some important lessons for us with regard to our money, our finances, and our possessions. So today, as we think about how to invest in heaven, let's look to the words of Jesus found in Luke's gospel here and see if we can understand what it is that really, truly matters in life. Look with me at Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, and follow along as I read. Starting in verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Now Luke chapter 12 deals forcibly with the importance of living in light of eternity. In the kingdom of God, material things, not material things, it's the kingdom of God which must take first place in our lives. Let me give you a little bit of background of what's going on here with our story. Jesus is in the middle of a sermon teaching his disciples to fear God alone. 
A crowd of many thousand had gathered along with them, as Jesus was telling them not to fear man, but God only. Other people may be able to kill our bodies, but God has the power to cast us into hell. His power and his justice are infinite, and the suffering of hell will far outlast the anger of man. And as he's preaching this lesson, all of a sudden, a man who is dissatisfied over what he considers to be an unfair division of his father's estate interrupts Jesus. Now this was an unusual request by this man, but we can understand a man asking himself, who better to know what I am owed than this teacher? This man says in verse 13, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, Jewish tradition and culture followed what Deuteronomy 21, 17 says, that it is the general rule for inheritance that the elder son is to receive double of what the younger son's portion is to be. Disputes over such matters were normally settled by rabbis. So this man's request of Jesus was selfish and materialistic, and there's no indication that the man had been listening seriously to what Jesus had been saying anyway ahead of time. This man really didn't ask Jesus for a decision on what would be fair. Rather, he demanded that a division of the estate be going towards him. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, is what he states. But notice with me that Jesus doesn't answer as he was expected to. In verse 14, he says, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator between you? Notice that Jesus refused to be sidetracked from his mission of seeking and saving the lost. Instead, Jesus does not make a legal decision here, but a moral one. Jesus knew that this family feud over inheritance was only a symptom of a greater problem. Greed. In fact, the you in verse 14 is plural, indicating that both brothers have a problem with the greed. As long as both brothers are suffering from greed, no settlement would have been satisfactory. Jesus tells him that the most important thing is not for him to solve his problem, but that his heart needs to be changed. If we are honest, how often have we gone to God asking him to change our situation rather than asking him to change our heart? I would dare to say that most of our prayers are that God would solve a problem or a circumstance that we're dealing with. And perhaps our prayer should be, God, here is my problem. Please change my heart. Well, look with me at verse 15 here, and Jesus says, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This area of danger for this man was greed, and it means the lust to have more than one's fair share, a grasping for more that is never satisfied. Or put it another way, greed is wanting more of what you already have enough of. Proverbs twenty-one twenty-six says it this way, they are always greedy for more while the godly love to give. 
The writer of Ecclesiastes says it this way in, in chapter 5, verse 10. Those who love money will never have enough. How absurd, absurd to think that wealth brings true happiness. But isn't that exactly what we tend to think? How many of us, if we could just win the lottery, feel like we could live the good life? Charles Swindoll has pictured it this way. Picture a shipwreck. Picture the sailor on a life raft in the middle of the ocean. His terrible thirst impels him to drink the salt water, but it only makes him thirstier. This causes him to drink even more, which makes him thirstier still. He consumes more and more of the salt water until unexpectedly he becomes dehydrated and dies. Here's another illustration, more closer to home. A young couple had been married for about a year. They were struggling financially and decided to do something about it. They worked to develop a strategy. They sat down one day to talk about their finances, and after much analysis, the young wife said to her husband, you know, if we miss two payments on the refrigerator and make one payment on the washing machine, we'll have enough money to make a down payment on a new television set. Does that sound familiar? We always want more than we already have. This brother didn't just want what he had. He wanted part of his other brother's inheritance as well. And Jewish law was pretty clear regarding family inheritance. But apparently, the law didn't fall in his favor. So this guy wanted to get Jesus, a great teacher, on his side. He was willing to make whatever action was necessary to get what he wanted. He simply wanted more. But even before he shares his parable, Jesus gives us a warning. The fight against greed is a constant, ongoing battle. Greed is a sin that destroys the witness of a believer. But I need to note, point out here the sternness of this warning from Jesus. The phrase, be on your guard, is a present imperative. It tells us that we must be constantly vigilant against greed. It simply does not go away. In fact, just when we think we have licked greed, Satan will dangle another juicy prize in front of us. And greed will once again rear its ugly head. So we must have resolve. We must be ready to carry on a constant struggle within our own hearts, the lure and the influence of greed in our lives. Here's the truth. Who you are is so much more important than what you have. Luke 12, 15 says it this way, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. This is a lesson that most of us never really learn. Oh, we claim to, and we might win battles against greed and materialism in our lives, but we never really seem to learn the ultimate truth. That stuff will not make us happy. True happiness is only found in doing what God wants you to do. And what God wants you to do is to be investing in things that will last in heaven, as opposed to the things that will only last here on earth. 
The way we become rich towards God is to invest in his church and in the lives of his people. But don't misunderstand me here. It's not that the church needs your resources in order to survive. God is the one who provides for that. But that generosity will add richness to your life that you would otherwise miss. Look with me at verse 16. Verse 16 is what is referred to as the parable of the rich fool. And and this is where I want us to focus the rest of our lesson on this morning. I want to point out three principles of what happens when we invest only in ourselves and not in God's kingdom. The first one there is when our hearts are focused on ourselves, we do not give God the credit for the things that he has done. Verse 16 says, Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. Now this parable is addressed to the multitude, for it says that Jesus spoke this parable to them, plural. I think that it's important to note that this parable does not condemn this man for being rich. And to his credit, it would appear that this man had come by his wealth quite honestly. The rich man of this parable was a farmer, but he represents all human beings who are seduced by all kinds of greed. As this farmer looked at his amazing harvest, he did not see the hand of God. He only saw his own effort. He did not see that it was God who was the one who provided the rain to water the crops or the soil from which they came. God was the one who orchestrated the crop's ability to grow, and yet this farmer took it for granted. He's a perfect example of greed because he has much, and he expects to get more. Jesus goes on to say in verses 17 and 18, This man thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he says, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now, there was really nothing wrong with what he was trying to do here. His desire to build more barns was both wise and prudent. The problem, however, lays in the fact that there was no thought of him wanting to share or help other people in need. In the original Greek, the pronoun my occurs four times and I eight times. Even in the English, we see the pronoun I five times and my four times. Notice how he says my crops, my barns, my goods. He's confused between ownership and stewardship. You know, really, it's not ours to own but it is ours on loan. In the original Greek, we see that it states I and my. But here's an illustration. There was a very wealthy man who died, and shortly after the funeral, one neighbor asked the other neighbor, how much did he leave? The wise woman responded, he left everything. 
You know, that little fable makes clear an important principle for those of us who follow Jesus. No matter how much you get, you really can't take it with you. And that brings me to my second point. When our hearts are focused on ourselves, we forget to trust in Him to provide. Look with me at verse 19. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Why don't you take life easy? Eat, drink, and be merry. Now, this man thought that when he put his plan into being, that he would have had it made for years to come. But all of this is based on the fact that this man expected to control the fate of his crops. He envisioned the future as continually expanding and under his own control. But you know what? Nothing could have been further under from the truth. Look with me at the, the book of James here, chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And it speaks to such an attitude as this. Now listen. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go do this or to that city. Spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why do you even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if this is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. The Bible does not discourage us from looking to the future with great expectation. But however, as we make our plans, whether in business or in our personal relationships or our own lives, we are to do so from the perspective that ultimately God is the one who is in control. In other words, we need to plan with humility. Now, I wonder what this says about our American concept of retirement. Now, I'm not against retirement, and I would like to do so one day, but you know what? Perhaps God would have us look at it maybe a little bit differently. Perhaps to see it as a time when we have more free income and greater time on our hands than ever before to do something for the kingdom of God. Being in that phase of life can truly be rewarding if you are choosing to give God the credit and trusting in Him to provide. Gavin Childress says it this way in the study guide on Luke's gospel. In the parable itself, we can detect a timeless theme. The love of this world. The Savior spoke of a man who would have considered himself blessed. His field yielded plenty of crops, too bulky to be stored in his own barns. The wealthy farmer did not seem unduly fretful at the prospect of rebuilding his barns or expanding his business. Most of us might have admired him as a capable businessman. Perhaps some of us would feel envy at the cozy nature of this man's promise to himself. But isn't this exactly the kind of material prosperity, carefree living for many years that we all desire or want? But as we continue to see on that God called this man a fool, look with me at verse 20. But God said to him, you fool, 
This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Now, a fool in the biblical language was not a description of mental ability, but of spiritual discernment. According to scripture, a fool is a man who leaves God out of any consideration. Psalms 14.1 says it this way, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This man that he's talking about is a fool, not because he has said this, but because he has lived his life as if God did not exist. He is a fool in that he did not recognize that his material blessings came from God, nor did he recognize an obligation to God in the use of his possessions. Fools leave God out of their lives. Greed is the logical result of the belief that there is no life after death. Greed sucks us in. We grab what we can, while we can, however we can, and then we hold on to it as hard as we can. Leo Tolstoy once wrote a story about a successful peasant farmer who was not satisfied with his lot. He wanted more of everything. One day he received this novel offer. For a thousand rubles, he could buy all the land he could walk around in one day. The only catch in the deal was that he had to do it and be back at the starting point by sundown. Early the next morning, he started out walking at a fast pace. By midday, he was very tired, but he kept going, covering more and more ground. Well into the afternoon, he realized that his greed had taken him far from his starting point. He quickened his pace, and as the sun began to sink low in the sky, he began to run, knowing that if he did not make it back by sundown, the opportunity to become an even bigger landholder would be lost. As the sun began to sink below the horizon, he came within sight of the finish line. Gasping for breath, his heart pounding, he called upon every bit of strength left in his body and staggered across the line just before the sun disappeared. He immediately collapsed, blood streaming from his mouth, and in a few minutes, he was dead. And afterwards, his servants dug a grave. It was not much more over six feet long and three feet wide. The title of Tolstoy's story was, How Much Land Does a Man Really Need? To be a fool is to have missed the point of life. The remarkable thing is that this person that God calls a fool, we would very often call a successful person. Jesus says, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. The Greek verb translated here, required or demanded, literally means to demand back or require back, conveying the idea of life as a loan that must be repaid to God upon demand. He goes on in the second half of this verse 20 to say, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Long before the great philosopher Solomon made a comment on this very problem that exists in our world today. 
Look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 21 through 23. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. So since you can't take it with you, there is no need to wear ourselves out accumulating it. Everything you have will one day be left behind. It's yours now to use or to abuse. But one day it's going to be taken from you and you will stand before the Lord and give an account as to how you used it. You would do well to remember the words of the missionary, Jim Elliot. at this point. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And this brings me to my final point. You need to decide whom you will serve. You need to decide whom you will serve. Verse 21 says it this way. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Riches have one major weakness. They have no purchasing power after death. The rich towards God are those who use what God has given to them for others. This foolish man, when he died, all his wealth and his possessions went to another. Christ tells us that all who lay up treasures for themselves are not rich toward God, but are fools. Where do you stand? Whom do you serve? Are you living for yourself or to further the kingdom of God? You know, the way we become rich towards God is to invest in his church and the people of his, his people. That generosity will add richness, richness to your life that you would otherwise miss. George W. Truitt, a well-known pastor in Texas, was invited to a dinner at home of a very wealthy Texas man. After the meal, the host led him to a place where they could get a good view of the surrounding area. Pointing to the oil fields covering the landscape, the Texas boasted, 25 years ago, I had nothing. Now, as far as you can see, it's all mine. Looking in the opposite direction, at the sprawling fields of grain, he bragged, they're all mine. Then he turned east toward a huge herd of cattle and bragged, they're all mine too. Then he pointed to the west at the beautiful forest. He said, that is all mine too. Then he paused, expecting Dr. Truitt to compliment him on his great success. But Dr. Truitt placed one hand on the man's shoulder and pointed heavenward toward the sky and simply asked, how much do you have in that direction? Then the man hung his head and confessed, I never thought of that. 
You know, many people, even many of us as Christians, haven't taken enough time to think of that. Think of things heavenward. Think of things that really matter. Many years ago, I came across a checklist that would help you determine whether or not you are making good investments. Take a look at this checklist with me. The first one is your calendar. Where do you spend your time? Is it in front of the TV, or are you working at building a relationship with your neighbor so that you can share the gospel with him? How about your checkbook? What do I spend my money on? Am I keeping it all for myself? Or am I being generous and helping others? What about your conversations? What do you talk about with others? Am I ashamed to be a Christian? Or am I sharing the good news with others? How about your contemplations? What do you think about? What are my thoughts are they right before God, or am I more concerned about what others think of me? And finally, your interruptions. What do I allow to stop me from doing what I am doing? As we leave here today, I want to challenge you to seek God's will in your finances and in your possessions. What are you investing your time and your money in? God wants you to thrive and to be happy and to have your needs met. But friends, Jesus has called us to invest in his kingdom. In closing this morning, I'm going to have us learn a little chorus that I learned many years ago as well. And it comes straight from this passage of scripture found in Joshua 24, 15. Joshua 24, 15 says this. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I want to ask you this question this morning. Whom are you serving? Who are you serving? Are you serving the Lord with all he's given you this morning? I want you to go before the Lord as we sing this final chorus. Make it right with him if you are not. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for this opportunity that we have. Lord, for the instructions that you have given us to take care of the things that you have provided for us. Lord, I'm asking right now that as, as we evaluate our own lives, that you would help us to make the decisions that need to be made this morning. That as we walk out of here, that we would not be concerned about who we are in the world's eyes but who we are in your eyes. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this love that you have for us and the way that you work for us. Lord, help us to use our resources for your glory, to further your work and your kingdom. 
for it's in your name I pray. Amen.